0: You're listening to Drek FM.
1: There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. (laughs) I was there more times than I can remember.
0: Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole, where the hosts from the network and friends just drop by and we talk all things geeky. Uh, make sure you get that drink word from Ruby and grab your chair. I'm your host, Matthew Rushing, and joining me today is Andy. Andy, it is great to have you back in the 602.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited. Thanks for letting me come back.
0: <laughs> oh, gosh, you're welcome anytime. And, uh, you know, I... I'm really glad that you're back and, and and not to be in any way sexist, but I am glad that it wasn't all men on the panel because I think we have something important to talk about tonight and and I think where we're going to end up is going to be a great conversation as well, but having a female perspective when we're going to talk about a movie like Mockingjay Part 1 is important because there are things that you might think about the film or or the star or anything that happens in the movie that you know, I as a guy might just not get. In the same way and and, uh, I'm glad that you decided that this is a podcast you wanted to be on tonight.
1: Yeah well I'm a big fan of The Hunger Games and I'm a big fan of Jennifer Lawrence and I'm a big fan of female-led movies so I'm happy to be here.
0: Awesome well I feel like then that I have chosen the right person to be here tonight. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) So uh, first off you know Tell me about your relationship just with Hunger Games in general. Uh, You know, when did you read the books? How fast did you read them and and all of that?
1: I started reading the books just after Mockingjay came out. And that was just lucky coincidence in that, you know, uh, I was in my my local bookstore and they had a, a big, you know, signs up and everybody was so excited. Mockingjay was out and I was like, oh, you know, this might be a good time to start reading these books I've been hearing so much about. So I went ahead and um, bought the first one um, because I'm just a little bit frugal. I don't want to buy a series if I don't know that I'm gonna finish it. Well, what ended up there's anything dumb about that? Yeah, is I sat up all night until like 3 a.m. finishing The Hunger Games and got to the end and was just like, "Where's the next book?" And I actually was like biting my nails and like waiting for the bookstore to open back up again the next day so I could go and buy the next two um because the first one really I really loved it I just I loved its messages and the characters and then just some of the emotion like I don't think that there is a, a book that has made me cry quite as much as the first Hunger Games book
0: <laughs> when whoa 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 Twilight doesn't make you cry mm,
1: yeah it does but for an entirely different reason
0: Okay, (laughs) because maybe how bad it is? Yeah, just sad
1: that it's a thing. Um, Yeah,
0: (laughs) I'm with you there. Yeah,
1: so uh, when Rue dies in the first book, I don't think I have ever cried that hard at a a fictional character's death. And I think part of it is just that it was really late at night and I was feeling a little extra emotional, but for whatever reason, that was a very viscerally upsetting death for me. And it's still to the point where... Her death hurts so much that when they do, and they do this with every single promo they do, whenever they do her little melody, I just, I get hit right in the feels. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't do that. I'm going to cry. Um, so, I mean, obviously when a book hits you that hard in any way, um, it's something special. So I just rushed right out, got the others, read them all within a day. And by that time I had gotten my roommate in it and she came, she came in that night and crying at 2 a.m. and was just like, Roo! and I'm like, I'm here. I'm here for you. Let me give you a hug. So, uh, yeah, I've been a fan. Do you want some brownies? Yeah, I've been a fan, and then I was super excited that they were going to make the movies. I think um, these books are, are really a good, a good story for movies. Um, I think sometimes Hollywood does this thing where they're like, oh, we have a book that made a lot of money. Let's make a movie out of it, and it doesn't necessarily yeah. translate well on film, whereas yeah, like the
0: vampire diaries <laughs> or you know what was the other one that they the um, city of glass series or bone series that they made into a movie uh, uh, and, yeah the mortal instruments you know, yeah the mortal instruments which is a fun book series I've read i really a lot enjoy of it. the
1: mortals it, it, you know they're making a tv yeah. show out of that now
0: oh interesting yeah they scrapped hmm, the movie idea better. which
1: is a good idea cuz that is just way too dense for a movie
0: well, and the the lead guy playing Jace was terrible for that part. Like he didn't look anything like I pictured this big strapping, you know, like hunk of a man. You know, expected somebody like uh, basically a younger version of of Chris Hemsworth. Yeah playing. That would be a good one. Instead, he looked like a waif.
1: Yeah, it's true. And also had no charisma, which is an issue.
0: Yeah, it was terrible.
1: Um, But yeah, I mean, this is just a great example of just because it was a a successful young adult franchise doesn't mean it needs to be on the big screen. Um, But Hunger Games, really, because of the themes that it has, you know, about how we consume media, I think it's just like tailor-made for the screen. And then also the fact that the books um, are not that long. Uh, is helpful. Uh, I think that they they have a lot in them, but as you know, it's not like trying to get the fifth Harry Potter book to to a movie, which is like <laughs> yeah, a, just a doorstopper of a book, and trying to condense that down is tough. So I was super excited that when they made those movies, and of course, I went out and saw all of them the second I could.
0: What did you end up for you? What did you end up thinking of? you know, the first movie and and then the second movie?
1: I was not a huge fan of the first movie. Um, I thought it was fine. It was just, like, average for me. Um, I think... Was it Gary Ross that did the first one? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I I was not a fan of his directing style. First of all, the shaky cam I thought was not effective at all. Um, And then just in general, I felt like he did what I like to call paint by numbers, which is Mm -hmm. basically just... Plot point. Okay. Plot point. Okay. Plot point. You know, with no real sense of flow. Um, if you're, Because books are totally paced differently than movies. You don't yes, need the are. plot points to be like, bam, bam, bam. You need to think, what is this book trying to say? What are the themes? And then structure your movie around it. And I felt like he did not do that very well. Um, I really liked the casting. I still really like the casting for basically every every part I thought was well cast. And that really is what saved that first movie for me is um, Is especially uh, Jennifer Lawrence and um, Woody Harrelson as Haymitch really Definitely. worked for me. So yeah, first one, not a huge fan. What did you think of it?
0: Well, you know, the, I, I'm with you with the first movie. I, I do. I paint by numbers, that's a great way to put it because I, I felt like they were hitting all the, you know, just the actiony points and, and everything like that. The, especially when you got to the games, the shaky cam and the quick cuts were so quick that the action was lost on you. You know, the, the visceral nature of the book and having these kids have to kill each other is is the thing that's supposed to be so disturbing and yet it happens so quickly. You know, there's no... And I think it's obviously because you have to try and keep this at a PG-13. Mm-hmm. You can't linger where you kind of need to linger and be really uncomfortable with what's happening. Yeah,
1: he definitely he definitely did this thing where he'd like pan away. Like he yes, would get the yes. aftermath or it would get just before so you know that this kid's about to kill, be killed brutally and then pan for the actual violence and then maybe you'll get a a shot of them dead but I mean how are you supposed to sell this terrible violence if you are afraid to show it
0: It, exactly I'm I completely with you and and let me ask you this so Reading through especially the first book, you do know, you remember the part where Katniss first gets to the Capitol and they strip her down and she's just standing in front of all these people naked and they're just, you know, working on her as if she's some sort of you Piece know of lump meat. of clay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That they're going to turn into something, quote unquote, beautiful. You know, those are the kind of things where there's this like dehumanization and all of these kind of things where – you know, in that book, the nudity wasn't anything that was supposed to be titillating. It was, you know, something of of destruction of a character. Like, you know, yeah. we're showing the degradation of, of how people can view each other.
1: Yeah, her body no longer belongs to her it, it, in a very obvious way. I mean, she obviously she's being sent to fight to the death, so they mm-hmm. don't care about her life. But it, yes. it, these scenes with the prep team just you know taking over their her body as if it is theirs touching her with impunity not asking her opinion on anything that is happening to her I think is a very um pointed choice that Suzanne Collins is making I think it's it's part of the theme of this is not something she's there's no choice involved here this is something that's happening to her
0: right well and it it made me think that You know, when they were going to do the first movie, I thought this movie needs to be rated R. Absolutely. Because of really what they need to do. But then, of course, you can't have the teenagers watching it because, you know, their parents aren't going to take them to this film. And so the hard part of, of turning this kind of literature into a movie is that sometimes the movie can do a disservice when you're not willing to really service the material in the way that needs to be done, which would be to make this probably a pretty hard R because it needs to have the violence, I think, and visceral nature of a Braveheart and everything that goes with that, you know, the way that Braveheart kind of helped us see the the disgusting nature and the disturbing nature of, you know, medieval warfare and how just terrible it was. Um,
1: And this is obviously not a story decision. This is a financial decision.
0: They right, want to make exactly. more
1: money, um, so that's always uh, disappointing when you see uh, story elements get lost for financial uh, gain, which we can talk about again when we talk about two parts of a <laughs> <Yes>. movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, I would like to to say that our culture, just in general, doesn't seem to have much problem with violence. You know, in any of our media, we have very graphic violence in basically every aspect of media we have Um, and this is one of the few instances in which the violence would not have been gratuitous it would have been very specific you know the violence is part of telling this story and the fact that they shied away with it makes it a much weaker movie
0: Well, and what's so interesting is what you just said. They're shying away from violence when violence is in everything that we have, whether it's on TV or in film. Like, violence is just—it's everywhere. And the sad part that, you know, a movie that is using the violence to try and make us think about what we consume on a daily basis— it's sad that they are, you know, cutting the the film's legs out from under it. You know, the message of that movie is really maybe you should think about the things that you're watching on television. Do we really need, you know, And
1: think about the morality of it. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, it it, it it and that is a whole other I mean, a whole other issue too. I mean, but do we really need a bunch of SVUs on TV where we can see the most disturbing things and it just becomes an unfortunate second nature to so many people to see that kind of thing
1: criminal minds is in its 10th season and going strong you know uh exactly it's not that our society is afraid of violence to to pretend that is true is just silly um and then we actually have a story that is asking us to examine how we consume violence and whether that's okay or damaging and we can't even we can't even do it honestly
0: oh nope hey 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 I feel like we're in like a Portlandia skit or something. <laughs> like, hey, hey, that is merely a suggestion. You need to you need to cool it. Well, um, at least they know, put a just, bird on it. Yeah, exactly. They did put a bird on it and it looked fantastic. Um, so jumping to that second movie, what did you think of the second film, especially as compared to, you know, the first movie?
1: Miles better. Just miles better. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... First of all, they get a, get rid of uh, the camera issues I had. For mm-hmm. I, I'm very much a purist when it comes to movies. I don't want to see your filmmaking. I want to be totally immersed in the story. If I'm noticing your camera angles, I feel like that's a problem. And um, so right away, we, we're more focused on the story rather than any sort of storytelling. Um, and then also just paced perfectly. There is like
0: yes, yes.
1: Every place you need a, t- a time to stop and breathe, they give you time to stop and breathe. Every time they need a character beat, you've got a character beat. Every time it starts to get slow and you need action, there's action. I mean, it's just perfectly paced. And also, I I still stand by this: the best adaptation of a book to film that I think I've ever seen. It just hmm, yeah, it's just it. It not only does it get everything you need in there, it. It's You don't feel like you're watching it unfold. You get totally immersed in the story and what's going on. And that's interesting to me because I think Catching Fire is a weaker book.
0: Interesting. So huh.
1: I'm not sure how they managed to take the stronger book and make a weaker movie and the weaker book and make a stronger movie, but they did. I was much more... And again, um, they uh, they did great job with casting our new characters that we get in Mockingjay. Um,
0: oh, goodness, yes. For
1: for one thing, I know that they're, especially all the fangirls on Tumblr, were very, very interested in who was going to be playing Finnick Odair.
0: Well, I mean, of course. <laughs> Look at those pecs. And I mean,
1: obviously, Finnick Odair is actually a really tough character to pull off because you have to have him be very vulnerable but very tough Um and he has to be very cynical, but sweet. Uh, it's just, it's a really... And you also, throughout most of the, the book and the movie, you don't know what his motivations are. So you don't know whether you can trust him. That's a a really hard ask of somebody. Yeah. And I actually was... <laughs> I remember when I first saw who they picked to, to play Finnick, and I was like, he doesn't look like Finnick to me, but then he nailed it um sam clayfin does a great job and also really uh joanna mason is one of my favorite Perfect. characters and that was Perfect. perfection yeah
0: yeah yeah um you know the other thing it's it's funny i i'm a little bit different in the sense that i love the second movie i think it's fantastic and, it, and like you i think they blew the first movie away on a whole for me that my favorite book in the series was actually number two and it happens a lot for me um, in the Lord of the Rings, my favorite book is The Two Towers, and so is my favorite movie in that series. Um, so, in a lot of ways, number two or The Empire Strikes Back is my favorite Star Wars film of all time. And and so a lot of times I, in these series, I've found that number two has, has really been my my favorite. And, and the same thing happened with this book and and then this movie. And one of the things that I really thought that they did well is the first movie. I don't buy Peta at all. He doesn't fit the part. He's not what they describe in the book where he's supposed to be kind of like a linebacker, basically, where he's just so strong, you know?
1: Yeah, I remember when they cast Liam Hemsworth and Josh Hutcherson, and I was like, wait, did they right. mix that up? I I, right. exactly. I was like, wait a second, isn't, what, what? Yeah, uh, just physically, it, it seems like they should be switched.
0: Right. And then in the second movie, though, I don't know what happened, but Josh Hutcherson... Just he, there's a spirit about him. It's it, I don't maybe it's just the direction, and I I think that's probably what it is because he just comes alive, and and they give him a better representation. I think of of the PETA character, even though they change him a little bit because you know they. They they change that scene where he can't swim at the beginning in the book and, and and they don't have that happen you know they they gave they make him a little bit stronger of a character just in general and it really works they I think they just do a fantastic job so that second movie I think on all cylinders is really firing and it and it got me excited for the fact that you know going into Mockingjay okay I think they can do this then came the bombshell they dropped on all of us we're gonna split this into two movies now we'd already seen this obviously in, in harry potter
1: and twilight had sp- our favorite series tw- right
0: well harry potter did it first <laughs> and then twilight did it and now mockingjay is doing it whereas harry potter and twilight i give them this they both have very large books they're trying to adapt into movies and so maybe it's just because Twilight has a really big type. I don't know. Have
1: you read um, Have you read uh, the fourth Twilight book? What is it? Breaking down. I have. I
0: only read two of them. That's all. I, I have read stomach. the
1: fourth Twilight book. Nothing happens in that book.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, then I miss <laughs> nothing. So Mockingjay though is is about three hundred or you know some odd pages if you've got the hardback book. And my thought was, okay, how why when you first heard about this, what did you think?
1: I mean, I, I wasn't surprised they have a successful franchise that they want to milk. I, mean, I doubt it was a, I doubt it was a story decision. With Harry Potter, I can almost see. I mean, that was obviously probably a financial decision as well. But at least the seventh Harry Potter book has so much going on in it that it makes it makes sense to to put it in two parts. And there's a natural split point in in the seventh. Yeah book yeah whereas Mockingjay is you're right it's a lot shorter um a lot a lot goes on and they have a lot more um just places that they go and the world gets a lot larger because in the first two it's Mm -hmm. very much focused on district 12 and then the arena um whereas in the in Mockingjay you start seeing other districts you start you see district 13 you know it's the world gets larger but the story is still pretty contained, um, and I don't see a very natural having point there. Um, the way that uh, I felt like it was obvious where they were going to cut Harry Potter off, and I was right. Um, whereas in this one, I was just really like, where are they going to, because that the flow, but okay. And I, was, I just think it's a kind of an awkward decision.
0: Yeah, you know, rereading the book, I I read up to the point where they they split the 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 film, and and it made sense in some ways because you know in the in the book, Peta is back. Spoilers, everyone! Peta Peta's back, <laughs> and um, then Katniss leaves and she she starts going to the district, so she ends up in District Two for a while in the book, and so. I could see that being the the splitting point. It made sense when I read it. Um, and, and it really depends on the way I think that they craft the second movie as well as to how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, um, we only
1: have one piece of the puzzle now. Right. So how can we really say whether it worked or not? I mean, we can say whether or not part one works as a movie.
0: Right, right. And so the idea of just kind of splitting this into two, you know... I don't know. It's frustrating to me as well because I feel like you could take Mockingjay and make it a three and a half hour movie, you know, like you do to any of the Lord of the Rings films mm-hmm. and just knock it out of the park. It'd be a fantastic epic final for, you know, and, and it's not like we as people don't enjoy sitting through long movies. I mean, obviously people go to see the Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit and any Christopher Nolan movie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Harry Potter we don't movies have are pretty long
1: too. Titanic. Yeah, exactly. Titanic was Yeah. insanely long. Epically
0: long. And it's you know, was the highest grossing movie of all time till that terrible movie called Avatar came out. <laughs> so
1: Avatar's pretty long too, isn't it? I've never seen that's, it.
0: That's yeah, it is pretty long. And that's a whole other show since this is a to clip. But um anyway, so yeah, I was I was very surprised. Um so The movie itself, I guess the first question is, does it work for you now that they've split it, you've seen it? Does it actually work as just a film itself in this series? Does it stand alone enough for you, or do you still feel like after seeing it, you're like, well, I've seen half a movie. Yeah,
1: um, I would say it felt incomplete. Um, I I don't feel like it had, I mean, again, that natural stopping point where um you feel like it, it's not even really it's kind of a cliffhanger but yeah no i i mean on the one hand you did get a more of a chance than you would have to explore some of the more nuanced sort of themes the propaganda gets a, probably a lot more uh time than it would if we had just one movie um there's a lot more dialogue than i think we'd have if it was just one more movie You know, but at the same time, like, when you finish that movie, do you feel like it stands alone? And I don't think the answer is yes there. I think it feels like, okay, now I need to see the rest, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. It really does. I've been thinking about this a lot, as I knew we were going to talk about it. And, you know, me mentioning The Empire Strikes Back, The Empire Strikes Back leaves you with such a cliffhanger you know you you really do know that you're going to need a third movie to finish this story you know it has a it has an ending but you also know there has to be more Mm -hmm. because there's the the story is completely unfinished and i feel like that mocking jay part one is very much like that okay a part of this story is done um, a part of it's kind of resolved, and yet it's still very unfinished. We, you know you need the next movie. And so in a lot of ways, it feels more like a, a serial installment, the The way that, you know, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi all kind of fit together instead of, you know, Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and Mockingjay are all kind of distinct stories. Mm-hmm. This is more like a... a, a it really is. It's it's part one of two, and uh, I didn't feel cheated coming out of the film. When I when I left the theater, I didn't feel like, well, that just sucks. Now I just have to wait for a whole another year to see the movie. I, I actually, having just read that part of the book, I was like, wow, they really did justice to everything that was in the book. In fact, they pretty much just did... Everything that was in the book They changed a a, a few things here and there Tweaked a couple things here and there But on a whole they really brought to life What I read Yeah
1: it was definitely a faithful adaptation I mean they have They have a handful of changes Um, Some of the biggest one Probably is Effie gets a much bigger role Um, Mm -hmm. In the book, we don't see her at all at this point, which I've always kind of liked in the Mockingjay book because Effie just disappears. We never know really what happens to Cinna. And I just feel like that's so realistic. Mm -hmm. It's like in war, people just disappear. That happens where nobody ever gets closure on what happened to these people. Um, And I've always really liked how in Mockingjay, it's just so confused. Where is all, where is... All of these people that we've come to love, where did they go and what happened to them? And some of it is not not said, is not given to us. And um, Effie, being back in the beginning here, I, I think works. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a change that makes sense because she's basically taking over the, the role of the prep team. Um, that the uh, they had um, and the role of the prep team in, in the book was basically to show that District 13 wasn't all that it was supposed to be. Um, that bad right. things still happen to people in District 13 and give us kind of a reason to distrust President Coyne. Um, whereas they never really set up the prep team. I think maybe they had a handful of lines apiece for the first two movies, which makes sense. They're minor characters um Effie, Effie takes over that role a lot better because we know her. We're sympathetic to her. She's always been one of a, uh, the fan favorites, um, mostly because Elizabeth Banks is awesome. Um, yeah, she's fantastic. And really gives Effie a kind of humanity with her um, just silliness. Because, um, you know, her, her obsession with fashion is... And propriety and doing things the right way and kind of the shallowness of her could be really, really, really unlikable, you know. She, set against this backdrop of Katniss's life, which is so horrific, and then Effie's worried about the mahogany, right? Um, right. That could be very dislike, I mean, just not likable. But Elizabeth Banks is just a genius, and she makes her sweet and cute and kind of naive and harmless, and having her kind of find out she really comes into her own here like she she becomes a part of the team a part of the rebel team and shows her worth in this way and kind of is forced to face up to some of the things that she has been a part of so I think that is a great change that they made
0: yeah it works so well and you know having her back to w- was really interesting because there really wasn't another character that kind of understood that whole side of Katniss, and I think it really adds a lot to the film. I do have a question for you. A friend of mine and I were talking, and she mentioned that she really liked the movie actually better than the book, and it was because there's so much going on in this book, and because it's told from first-person point of view, you you don't get as much as you could if, if the storyline and the books hadn't been told that way especially at this point of the story where everything's bigger you know it would it's like um you know in in harry potter if we got to the fourth book and we're still only seeing things from only harry's point of view how much we would miss Mm -hmm. you know this book as you read it and then you watch the movie I, i don't know what did you think did you feel like that they did a Maybe a better job of kind of portraying the storyline because they're not bound by just being inside Katniss's head all the time. Well, I mean,
1: this is a change they made from the very beginning, uh, especially in the first one. You get to see the game makers, that's a huge change. Right. Yep, seeing things, seeing the Hunger Games from the perspective of the game makers was r- interesting. I don't know that I particularly liked it in the first movie, but it did give us another perspective because the books are so tightly. On Katniss and she's so ignorant of what's going on around her um, that it kind of adds to the suspense I think in the first book but you're right because this is an issue with the third book the third book so much of what is happening Katniss is not there for the uprisings Katniss is not there for Um, the rescue of Peta Katniss is not there for Um, so I mean the rescue of Peta being the other probably probably the biggest change they make is we actually get to see it. Right, Um yep. In the book, it's very much, oh, Katniss is sitting there waiting to find out what happens. Right, yes. And, uh, mm-hmm. the audience is stuck there with her. It's very much, it's pretty weak, as storytelling goes, because it's literally her hanging out, waiting to find out what happens, which is not fun to read. Um, so changing that... Uh, in this movie, I think, worked better, especially since, too, some of the other changes we saw were seeing the other districts in Rebellion. When Katniss is not there so we've always had that that scene where Katniss goes to District 8 and you know does her biggest propaganda moment and her biggest battle I guess you could call it in District 8 but we never see District 7 in the books we never see District 5 so they added these two very specific scenes to show us District 7 having their rebellion District 5 and like blowing up this dam um, you know and we get to see what's going on outside of Katniss's perspective which I think is really helpful well and it's
0: uh, especially obviously film is a visual medium and you know literature is page bound and and it's it's word based and so you can do a lot in a book to make it work whereas in a film you really do have to see things
1: yeah can you imagine if they had shot katniss sitting yeah just like pacing around (laughs)
0: yeah it would have been terrible well and and what was so cool especially is the way they changed the end of the film where she is watching the rescue kind of happen on screen for a while and then they actually do that thing where she just has to wait around Mm -hmm. but you've gotten to see enough of it that it, it brings it to life it's really fantastic and so they I think they just do themselves a service here and they really understand the source material and you know suzanne collins is actually one of the producers executive Mm -hmm. producers yeah here so any of the changes they made i think that she's been on board with that and has really maybe even helped them craft some of these things so that they feel true like you know i remember you know i just i read the book and up to the point where they cut it to the movie and i watched the movie and i felt like everything felt right you know and that's what you want from a, a book adaptation. You don't necessarily want it to be word for word, you know, the, the exact same. It just needs to feel like the book. And that is, the I think, probably the best compliment I could give to anybody who's adapting, a, you know, a book and a movie is, is that, well, you made me feel like I read the book, even if you changed something.
1: Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we get from this is an added scene with Katniss and President Snow. um, Mm -hmm, Which mm kind of reminds us that these are basically our hero and our villain. Um, And they make that a lot clearer and adds a little bit of tension for Katniss. So the one thing that we do see directly confirmed in the movie that we don't see in the book is that President Snow lets them rescue PETA on purpose. Yes. Yes. Whereas in the book it's it's left up in the air on whether or not um PETA was, you know, let go, as it were, as a way to torture Katniss. We have Gail coming back and saying it was too easy, um, and then we have obviously the very uh horrifying a reaction of PETA to Katniss, and you realize that this is not actually as good of a thing as we want it to be. We want it to be this amazing, yay, PETA's back, he's safe, now we can get back to Katniss and PETA being in love, like whatever you want to think about that. But they, sh- they really turn that around, and PETA coming back is actually tragic. You know, yeah. we actually have that directly confirmed in the book with this added scene with Snow, Mm-hmm. That he does do that very specifically to torture Katniss.
0: Well, and it was it was interesting. I just uh, reading in the book, you know, she's walking to see Peta, and she's thinking about how he's he's going to kiss her, you know, because that's what he's going to do. And then, of course, it, instead, you get you know him wrapping his hands around her throat, trying to kill her. And it is really shocking. And even just in the movie too, you know, it's coming. Because there's been such a change in him, and and you just know, because we've all read the book, um, most of us have, and I think even people who haven't read the book can sense something's going to go wrong. But yeah, they just do that really well. It drives home the point. And I did like that Katniss is having this confrontation with Snow... Because it's also alluding to the fact that she's going to have the confrontation later with Coin. Yeah,
1: absolutely. At the end
0: of the, uh, the second part of the book. So. And
1: actually, let's, that is a good segue to start, start talking about President Coin. She's one of the um, new characters we get in this movie. Um, some of the District 13 people, uh, including Coyne, and then also uh, one of my favorite characters from the books, which is Boggs. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to butcher his name. Ma- Maharshala Ali <laughs> is the actor that plays Boggs. I thought he did a good job. I've always really liked that character in the book. Kind of like this soldier, but he's not... He's not this, like, unfeeling person. he He's this kind of person that starts out being very much um, a product of District 13, and then just by being around Katniss, like, has his perspective cha- change, which is a really cool thing to see because it really highlights what Katniss is throughout these books. She doesn't choose things. Let's be clear. Things happen to her and she changes things. She's a catalyst. But she doesn't really ever have a whole lot of empowerment in what happens to her. First she's a tool of the Capitol in the games. Then she's a tool of District 13 For the Rebellion, at no point is she really choosing what she wants to do. Her destiny is kind of being pushed on her. But at the same time, just by being who she is, she changes the people around her. Um, And you see that very clearly in the character of Boggs.
0: That's yeah, I felt like he was a great addition to the cast and and i'm I'm l- really looking forward to how they're gonna to play that out in the second film,
1: yeah, because he gets and a lot more interesting um once really they does. start uh, actually fighting the capital, and then, okay, yes, we were also gonna talk about coin, <laughs> yes, <laughs> so um
0: she you know, one, I'm really glad that they are beefing up her role and and what's so interesting is that if you're paying attention they're subtly showing you how she has the same way of ruling that snow does absolutely it's just hers is more benevolent at this point well
1: she doesn't have the Um, power she wants yet uh, exactly, but their personalities are very much the same. The mm-hmm. way that they achieve their goals is very much the same. I thought it was interesting that they even gave uh, Julianne Moore white hair, almost as if they're trying yeah. to to just connect her in our minds to President Snow, who has you know this white hair, white roses. He puts Peta in white. Um, I think I feel like that's probably a pretty specific choice um, of her hair you know, Julianne Moore being this famous redhead and they dye her hair white for this.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, well, and then of course in the book they even talk about how she has this very straight, you know, long white hair that doesn't seem like it's out of place at all. And so I I think, uh, you know, again, they're doing a great job with the visuals and the way that they use the characters to really play up what's going to happen in in the second part of the film. And so I really, really liked that. Uh, another person that I really thought did a great job was Krishida. um, Having Natalie Dormer play her, uh, you know, she brought a gravitas to that role as the director and, you know, how she really does believe in, in what they're doing. And, you know, obviously she's, you can tell she's a capital girl, you know, with her, her wild hair and crazy, you know, head and, <laughs> Face tattoos and on all of that, but just she has a small role, but I felt she does a really good job with it. Um, You know, she makes the most of her part. Yeah,
1: and her casting is important because she is going to become so much more important coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, And Natalie Dormer is top notch um, in basically everything she has ever been in. So um, it's good to get yet another great casting decision here, and I, I just find it very interesting because even though she's basically a director right or I mean I guess you could call her a camera person to a certain extent too um, she's she's a director but she's also a soldier which just goes to show how important propaganda is in this war that they have um, they have placed so much importance on the director of propaganda that she is that central to their their strategy for winning.
0: Well, and I think I guess that's a great way to just kind of segue into talking about some of the themes, and you know, propaganda in this movie is huge on either side. You know, either even have a battle going on between Peta and Katniss propaganda wise, mm-hmm. and each of them is saying things from a from a different side. You know, obviously, we know PETA's being forced to say those things, uh, and w- wouldn't really believe them if he if he isn't being coerced. But on the other side, you have Katniss, who's full of belief in, in what she's saying, um, and that even though she's a tool of District 13 and the rebellion, she actually does believe what she's saying, um, and I think that's a, that's a really interesting thing. But the idea that that no matter where we are, there's going to be some kind of bias. There's going to be some kind of propaganda, um, even in a war that I think just about anybody can get behind, World War Two. You know, there's there's a big use of propaganda on each side. You know, you, ha- you, you have the Uncle Sam wants you posters and you have the same kind of thing in, in Germany, you know, with, with the Hitler youth and that kind of stuff. Uh, on our side of the pond, it's uh, we've got, you know, kids doing victory gardens and stuff. So the way that we use information and all of that, and especially today in a world where we live that News is always on, which means it's almost always wrong for most of the time that it's on, because until a story's finally finished, um, which it just drives me crazy, um, but that's a soapbox that we'll try not to get on. Um, what did you think about that, Andy? Just, the, just the way they're kind of using these ideas in the movie. I think just giving us a visual representation of the world we live in.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a couple things here, so. Propaganda is obviously super important to both sides of this war. Um, The way, and to be fair, that's, I mean, this goes right back to the beginning of the series in which the Hunger Games are used as a tool of oppression. Um, And it's very specifically to keep, to make sure that the districts understand that they have no power. And here is our symbol of them having no power. Right. Um, and then Katniss becoming a symbol herself and her Mockingjay becoming a symbol um, and then segways right into this third film where they actually are making very literal propaganda uh, for both sides and using that to both justify their own actions um, and also to keep the support of their people. Right. So they have to have they have to. I mean, the way that Katniss is looking at it is keeping up the morale of the rebellion, right? Making them feel like they have a chance to win, making them remember what it is they're fighting for, all this stuff. That is very powerful. That is very powerful. The morale of troops can have a huge impact on how a war proceeds. You know, a loss of a loss of justification is a good way to end a war. I mean, you can th- kind of think about uh Vietnam for the US. I mean, Vietnam is really remembered as the first televised war um where we got very uh specific images from Vietnam and it changed the way Americans saw war and Americans and how Americans thought war should go. And it also lowered their tolerance for an extended war. All of these things came through visually, uh, through the news. And uh, so you can really see why this is important for both sides. And then President Snow still trying to desperately keep hold of keeping his citizens brainwashed. The Capitol, we've talked a lot about the re- the rebels, but the Capitol is just as brainwashed as the uh, the district is supposed to be. I mean, the Hunger Games was just as much a tool to control the capital as it was to control the districts, just in a different way. He wanted them distracted, right? He wanted them focused on these games so they wouldn't actually take the time to start thinking, hey, maybe this society we have is broken. Um, I just really like this theme because I think it's really applicable to... The world that we live in now Um and I think it's been it, it, it's a it's a little bit shallow but it's also a young adult series so I don't know that we can ask too much of it but I do think at least it gets a, the themes across very clearly which is nice.
0: I couldn't agree with you more because I think the way that people are desensitized to the violence uh, that we see around us is is very much like what we see in the film in, The games are a way of desensitizing the people in the districts to the violence that happens around them every day. Um, And and so that they're so focused on on that and even what they see in the games, it has an effect on then their everyday life so that then what happens to them from the peacekeepers doesn't seem so bad. I think the same thing can be said that happens to us and and really what Suzanne Collins, I think, is driving at throughout this entire series is the way that we see violence every single day depicted in our media, whether it's the news media, whether it's just entertainment media, and sad that we call it entertainment sometimes, uh, that desensitizes us to all that's going on around us. So to get topical and, and... We don't want to spend too much time here because it's not the place to have a political podcast. But we we look at the violence and, and the things happening in somewhere like Ferguson right now, and I think so many people are desensitized to seeing things all the time that it just washes over us like water off a duck's back. And that is exactly what Suzanne Collins is driving at in The Hunger Games. She is driving us to think about what we consume day in and day out.
1: And what we'll accept, right?
0: Exactly. What
1: will we accept from the people who are in power above us?
0: Right, exactly. And that is that is the message of this series, and that's why I think that this is important. That's why I think this series matters. And that is why I'm glad that um, we're talking about it right now, because I, I think that this is what... You know, you said that this is a young adult series and we can't expect too much of it. But the fact that a young adult series is making us ask these questions in the first place is fantastic. Absolutely, And I'm so glad that, that kids like this book because I'm hoping that it'll implant some ideas in their minds. Unfortunately, I, I think that kids haven't been taught to think and therefore, to them, this is just another sensationalistic story. And there's nobody there to kind of guide them in their thinking or even teach them how to think critically. And and that's a real unfortunate thing because this could be a powerful change agent. And if we want this country to change, if we want humanity to change, well, uh, to quote the stupid song, the children are our future. <laughs> and um, we need to be... Investing in them and teaching them um, what is is right and what is good. And, And that's another thing that I do think that this book really does, this series does. It drives home the point that there's some absolute evils in this world that really should be abolished or fought against. And there's some absolute good that should be brought to the forefront. And the biggest idea is that equality for all people that that all people should be treated with dignity and the respect that they are due because they are human beings and that there is no more than you need uh to treat somebody with dignity other than the fact that they are a human being uh and i think that's a that is a great way um to to, another great lesson from this book series because this book series in this movie series really talks about that classist idea as well and you know the capital is on top and everybody else just feeds it that's that is completely against everything that i believe in as a person of belief and uh and faith because i just i believe we're created equal um and and it's it's something that is I, so important. I'm so glad that, that um, in some ways uh, maybe the Hunger Games can help kids think about, and even adults, think about what's happening in our world and, and maybe a way that we can strive to make it better.
1: Well, I mean, this is a, a reason why children's programming and young adult programming is so important because children pick up messages very uh, completely when they're young and uh, if we want them to if they if we want them to see the world a certain way uh teaching them young and giving them stories when they're young that help them you know empathize with other people is super important um and i mean it's not like this is stuff they're not going to have to deal with or they're not going to have to see because we do live in a world where stuff like this is not unthinkable. I mean, I mean I've mean, i been seeing on Twitter, you know, Ferguson, the, the pictures from Ferguson, and then people tweeting that they just saw Mockingjay, and it looks a lot the same to them in some ways. I mean, violence happens in our society, and the way we look at it through our fiction really influences how we handle it in our real life. So I agree that it's very important um, to tell these kinds of stories especially in uh, young adult settings and even depending on how it's handled in for children as well because um, they are going to have to deal yeah. with this in their lives and we need to give them the tools to understand it.
0: Well and I think even just uh, the, the, the difference between really good programming for for kids uh, you know I, really thinking about what we're pouring into our children day in and day out. And is that really the best thing to be pouring into them? You know, all of those programs on, on any of those stations that are just driving kids to desire more and want more and all that kind of stuff and really, instead of really driving home important messages and, I don't know, it, it just speaks to me the importance of family and parents and a good community around your kids to to teach them to really teach them you know it it's it's not just a school's job it's a family's job it's their community's job to really invest in in our next generation uh to bring it to that that star trek term uh because they're the ones who are going to be leading us and down the road and, and how important that is and i am again i'm just glad that something like the hunger games became popular but I hope that its its legacy is one that it helped change kids' minds about things, and it wasn't just another sensationalistic story that they consumed and then kind of forgot. So, and and maybe you know even just something like what we're doing tonight, Andy, might be something where it helps people think about something that they might not have thought before in the story. And uh, you know that's one of the things I love about. You know, dissecting and understanding what I consume is, is, you know, we, we shouldn't consume things uh, absentmindedly. We always need to be on guard. You know, as, as um, Moody would say <laughs> from Harry Potter, constant vigilance. <laughs> um, it, it, because uh, media in all ways is telling us something. It's preaching something at us, especially entertainment media. It's always giving you a message. What's the message? And then how do I figure that out? That's really important. And so I just, I happen to think that the, and and I'm so glad we agree that the messages here from the Hunger Games are something that are poignant, important, and very, very topical, unfortunately. Well, Andy, I am really excited because um, the Hunger Games have done something else on the other side. The Hunger Games have finally given us an answer as to whether or not a female action movie is really viable in Hollywood, and I think, if anything, uh, <laughs> the Hunger Games and Jennifer Lawrence and her reign here um, have shown us that people want and are ready for you know female-led action movies, and and of course that translates into superhero movies as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've always. I've always thought it was kind of disingenuous, all of these reasons that they wouldn't make female-led movies. Uh, It's not like The Hunger Games is the first female-led movie that's done well, um, although it is certainly a very striking example of that. But, I mean aliens was great <laughs> you know
0: yeah <laughs> alien Terminator aliens, yeah.
1: Uh, especially Terminator 2 Terminator Two, Sarah yep. Connor I mean it's not like we haven't had this work in the past it's more I feel like it's more like Hollywood has gotten stuck in these assumptions that uh, nobody wants to go see stories about women and they're just not gonna work and will make no money and blah, 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 when I don't feel like the audience has really shown that at all. Um, and it's just a little bit of cowardice here. <laughs> you know, they don't want to be, most of these studios don't want to be the person that gambles on a female-led movie. And then the other problem being that when we do have a female-led movie that is bad or that does poorly it's not because the movie was bad oh no it's because it was a woman-led movie that it that it failed right um so i'm thinking of like electra or catwoman yeah where i I (laughs) mean matt matt knows this that i've been just like railing against hollywood for a long time for not making me a wonder woman movie (laughs) and uh one of the most annoying uh, reasons that I ever heard for that was, well, nobody went to see Elektra, or nobody went to see Catwoman. I'm like, nobody went to see those movies because they were bad. Not because they were. <laughs> I mean, exactly. what... Are we gonna then say, okay, well, nobody went to see Green Lantern. Guess we don't need any more DC movies. It's just a stupid reason. Because um, we don't blame flops that are led by men on the fact that they're men. Uh so I just think that's always been an unfair criticism. But we have seen this summer, especially we started to see a really uh, cool kind of trend. We had Maleficent being led by Angelina Jolie. We had Lucy with Scarlett Johansson. Um, and, you know, obviously all every single one of these Hunger Games movies led by Jennifer Lawrence have been block blockbuster powerhouses. Um, and we finally, finally, finally got an announcement that they're going to have a Wonder Woman movie. So I I about passed out on the ground with joy, and now I'm just going to go back to yelling at them until they give me a Black Widow movie.
0: (laughs) Well, good, because I'm behind you with that. I I think Black Widow would be a fantastic movie. It was exciting to me that uh, Warner Brothers decided to go with uh, Michelle McLaren to direct Wonder Woman she's done work on Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad which both of those things are fantastic but I think her work on uh, Game of Thrones to me is the most exciting because it means she can work in kind of a fantasy world which Wonder Woman very much is with its Greek mythology and you know we already know that they're going to be basing her off the new 52 idea which is that she's a child of Zeus. And um, that's really exciting to me because I think that it might be kind of the movie that I hoped Thor would be, but I just have never really enjoyed the Thor films except for Loki. And uh, so that's exciting. I think Hollywood's finally getting the message. I think you forgot to mention, just as you we were talking, you listed out movies Frozen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a huge Disney blockbuster film about two princesses that didn't have. The main story wasn't about her falling in love with a prince. I mean, she falls in love with a guy, that's that happens. <laughs> but it was about the love of two sisters yeah. and them coming to understand who they are and accepting one another and and accepting themselves, which what a powerful story and and I think that's what makes Frozen just so unique is that it didn't have it had some tropes in it. But it also wasn't afraid to explore some new territory that um, young girls may never have seen. Before. And
1: the thing that I love most about Frozen is not just that it's female-led; um, it's that it's very specifically about a female relationship. Um, we right. have. Yep just so overwhelmingly numbers and numbers of what we call bromances, right? There's like yep. <laughs> these stories that just celebrate male friendship. And I mean, you and I were Trekkies, Kirk and Spock being like the original bromance. Um,
0: yep, Bashir and O'Brien.
1: <laughs> so unfortunately, you don't really find that for women. You don't find very many stories that celebrate female friendship, um, and female relationships, which is why, um, you know, one of the the most common ways that we uh, crit- look critically at whether or not it's a good movie for women is The Bechdel Test, which is you have two named characters that are female that talk to each other about something other than a man, because it's not just enough to have A female character that's awesome you also want her to be interacting with other women in a meaningful way and frozen is a great example of hey maybe people do want to go see movies that are based on female relationships and maybe we should make more of those movies
0: i agree and i I really think that in some ways Hollywood is starting to to change in that. And I think that's a win for everyone because it just gives us a broader range of films. And honestly, I'm just a fan of great stories. You know, I like The Hunger Games because it's a great story. It wasn't because it had Jennifer Lawrence in it or it was led by a female. I read the book and I thought the story was mm-hmm. good. You know, um, for me, one of my favorite character, my actually my favorite character of all time is Lucy from The Chronicles of Narnia. Oh
1: yeah, she's great
0: she's a great character who is is a is somebody that I think uh, anybody could look up to because of, of the way that she deals with all the situations that happen to her in the in in the books so you know it it's not about you know to me is it a man or is it a woman whatever just give me a good story and I, I if it's a woman if it's a man it's great but we've had such a focus on, on one side I am glad that we're going to to finally hopefully continue to be exploring you know the female point of view and, and allowing that to give us some some new stories maybe some more interesting stories than we've had before because we're we're opening up um, the, the canvas uh, and we're going to start painting with a bigger brush that's really cool to me Yeah,
1: I mean we have seen some progress in this area and I mean we've been talking more geekery projects but there are also is you know bridesmaids pitch perfect mean girls yep. yeah uh, comedy has been seeing a, a lot of um a lot of good stuff for for women as well but i would like to point out that i mean we're still not quite there i mean if you look avengers we have one female character uh guardians of the galaxy we have one female character um and we would like to see more i guess um all, all of this progress is awesome as long as we keep the momentum and keep keep showing stories that are not your typical stories. Um, and I, this doesn't just mean women, right? This also means people of color, um, LGBTQ folks, you know, just changing up the perspectives a little bit so everybody has a chance to see themselves in their stories. I mean, Falcon, uh, Anthony Mackie who played Falcon. One yeah, of the things awesome. he said was I want kids to dress up like Falcon for Halloween. And then this Halloween it was like so adorable. He tweeted a picture of a little black boy dressed up as Falcon and he was like, Just my life my life is awesome right now because we really want to make sure <laughs> that kids at all kids and young adults and now adults all get a chance to see themselves and their heroes and we've been focusing on one perspective for far too long so well andy thanks
0: so much for for joining me tonight it it really has uh, just been fantastic getting to talk through uh this with you the themes that we've talked about, some of the bigger ideas we've talked about, especially here at the end. Uh, it's just been awesome. And of course, you're uh, welcome back anytime. But tell everybody where they can find you online. Uh, the
1: easiest place to find me is I am currently live tweeting my way through Star Trek. Um, I'm currently on the, the original series, um, and I am doing that at Twitter at First Time Trek. And I'm also starting an archive project. So if you missed my next generation tweets, uh, you can find them. I'm slowly, slowly, slowly getting them onto Tumblr at First Time Trek, uh, firsttimetrek.tumblr.com. Um, so you can check that out if you happen to miss my next generation tweets.
0: Awesome. It's been so much fun talking about Mocking Jay Part One today. But it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network.
1: Previously on Trek.fm,
0: Standard Orbit.
1: But instead of it being a human being prejudiced against Vulcans because the Romulans look like Vulcans, the Vulcans are taking advantage of themselves looking like Romulans in order to be racist against Romulans. Earl Grey.
0: So he's got the two armrests, and the right one says little, you know, Ensign, you know, Lamont, and the little arrow. And then the one on the on the left says Lieutenant Commander Data. Like a little arrow.
1: The orb. But when they pull away from that window with Jake and Kira, and they
0: pull away from the station, it's like they're closing the book. They're, they're actually closing the back cover of the book, and it's the end of the story.
1: To the journey! How do you feel, Char, about the Borg Queen? Oh boy. I think the longer that I have watched Star Trek, the more I'm in the camp of, I don't know if I like her. The Ready Room. They
0: want you to come across on Archer's side where he can be mad at Trip, but I have a really hard time being Archer being mad at Trip because just think of if we still treated you know people of a different race like this. Mission Log,
1: a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast.
0: That can honestly be the reason they brought Wesley, because Wesley's got nothing else going for him there. I mean, yes, he can lead those kids, but that's just going to be by virtue of his age, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's 15 years old. Of course, all the other kids are going to look up to him, at least for a while. Then if he ends up being a total tool, then they won't.
1: Commentary, Trek stars. Yeah, yeah well, Learning yeah. Curve like was never meant to be a season one finale. They were going to do the 37s, and then UPN wanted to open season two with it, and that totally didn't work either. Man, you got you to gotta say UPN really ooped it up. Literary Treks. What Jerry Taylor talks about with Catherine Janeway's life is it's kind of a series of her relationships. I mean, she should be doing all sorts of fantastic things, right? And instead,
0: we're learning about her boyfriends.
1: Melodic Treks.
0: But there's a whole host of, of people that appear in Star Trek. As I said, most of it is classical, so it's Verdi, Vivaldi, Strauss, Troy um
1: Harry Kim. The 602 Club.
0: This really does have an impact on, I think, the entire, you know, comic book world. Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns still have a huge impact in the way that people view Batman today.
1: And that's what else is happening on Trek.FM.
0: So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button. That really helps us out greatly and it makes it easier for listeners, other listeners, to find out that show on iTunes when they're doing their searching. And if you're not an Apple user, we have got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 from our website and grab the RSS link as well. I want to say a special thank you to our associate producer, Norman C. Lau, and his support of the network and the 602 Club. His Twitter account is at Norman Lau, that's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O, and he is also a big supporter of the Star Trek Axonar podcast and can be found on their official Facebook page, as well as the Babel Conference. Last but not least, he is also a huge supporter of our network on Patreon. And Patreon is another way that you can help all of our shows keep coming to each week by becoming a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's patreo dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks that we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really do appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope that you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com trekfm. You can contact us. You can use the form at trek.fm contact. Just choose a show and the email will come to us. You can leave us a voicemail, look in the sidebar, on the show page, or go to speakpipe.com trekfm. Of course, we're on Twitter, at TrekFM. We're on Facebook, at Facebook.com TrekFM. And of course, you can find us on the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook. Or just go to our website, at TrekFM, and click Discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring the 602 Club and all of our shows to each week. And our sponsor for the show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read, but never thought that you'd have time for. And as a Trek FM listener, you get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com trekfm and sign up today. Again, that is audibletrial.com trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting the 602 Club and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an eight-foot orbiter and return that craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than a hundred student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make that happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org and find out more to get your seat on the mission. And of course, you can find me at MattRushing02 on Twitter. You can also find me doing literary treks where we talk about books and comics here on the network of Star Trek with Christopher Jones, as well as The Orb with him where we talk about Deep Space Nine all the time. I hope you'll check out those shows. And you can also find me at my own personal blog, 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear?
1: Oh, mm-hmm.